it's very hard for anyone to fully grasp what somebody else's conscious experience is, right? So for example, is what I call fear the same thing you call fear, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there's this cluster of things that happen in our brain that might be slightly different for each one of us that we tend to cluster as fear in the English language, but each one of us might experience it slightly differently. Hi everyone, John here. Just wanted to quickly let you know that the following episode was recorded before the pandemic. So if it sounds like we're all in a room together, that's because we were. But rest assured that right now, we're all social distancing responsibly. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you're all staying healthy, safe, and brave during these difficult times. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting week of the Biosphere Podcast, where a bunch of Caltech students get together and talk about their favorite science for those out there that love to hear about biology. This week, we have a co-host, our good friend Tomas. Tomas is a computational neuroscientist who grew up in Brazil and came to Caltech to study how human brains process information in order to learn and make decisions on a daily basis. So Tomas, welcome. Thanks for joining us this oh, week. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about um, the brain and what the brain does and specifically emotions today. So in order to do that, I'd like to pose a question to all of you. Oh, yeah. great. Um, yes, we love questions, yes. especially in the beginning. Yes, definitely. Um, I would like really you quick, before we start, my name is Aditi. Oh, yes. I'm Julian. I'm John. Back to where we were. <laughs> <laughs> In order to set the tone today, I'd like to ask all of you, mm -hmm. how would you rate fear on a scale from one to five? Well, on the one hand, it's important, like fear is an important response evolutionarily, right? Like you know when to flee something that's going to eat you or attack you or whatever. On the other hand, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. <laughs> so I'd give it a solid one. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, I was gonna say two for the same reasons. I kind of wonder why, I kind of wonder why though that I feel like it's more valuable than you do for the exact same reasoning. Well, I didn't want to say three because I always say three. I'm always like, well, it could be this or that. And I'm I always see. like a both sides are with this like That's rating good. game. I so it's important to have opinions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think I'll go with uh, two as well. I think fear holds people back a lot of the time, but also keeps people from accidentally killing themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe three, actually. You know, I'm going to yeah, go three. A, I'm going to go three. Because every day three. you have the option of doing something super dangerous and killing yourself <laughs> or uh, going about gonna, life in a more rational way. I'm going to so continue maybe to if you can, if you can temper your fear I feel like if and embrace I knew, it. I feel like if I, knew if, if I knew what life was without fear, then maybe I'd be in a better position. I feel like it would be death. I feel like life without fear is death, right? Like you're just like, oh yeah, I'll try that random plant, and then goodbye. Yeah, without hesit, without caution. Right, like without any caution at all. Huh. Or I guess well, we, I shouldn't equate fear to like thinking through the consequences, which is I guess what I'm kind of doing by saying that. But, but yeah, I mean, if you don't flee when you feel like you should. Yeah. yeah. Totally. I mean, what do you yeah. think, Tomas? Well, uh, I would argue that fear is actually really important. Oh, yes. Uh, and is he going to give it a five? I'm actually going to give it a four out of five. A four? Right. Okay. Wow. Uh, because 
living without fear is actually pretty dangerous. Uh, we're, we might actually end up talking about it today, uh, about the case of a person who seemingly does not experience fear in what this person's life is like. And as it turns out, not only it's dangerous for this person, but the people around this person might suffer some consequences as well. Sure, sure. But we'll get there. Okay. Now that we set the tone, <laughs> uh, one of the things I want to talk about today is not just fear from a purely psychological standpoint, but also about the neuroscience of fear. In uh, other words, what happens in the human brain or in the brains of animals while they're experiencing fear and while they're learning that certain things are dangerous. So are you familiar with optogenetics? Uh, Only vaguely, yeah. so I'd appreciate a primer. Yeah, of course we don't have to go into the deep details of how it works, but it is a technique where neuroscientists use light to activate and deactivate certain areas of the brain of a mice, of, of a mouse, sorry. Fundamentally, you alter the functioning of neurons in order to make them sensitive to light. And then you shine um, light onto them. And this causes these neurons that are being affected to either fire more or to fire less. They may be excited or inhibited. What happens after this is if you have a theory of how a certain brain area functions and you disrupt or increase its activity by using this method of optogenetics, then you can compare what you thought would happen according to theory and what actually happens. So just before we get into more complex emotions, I'd like to cite an example uh, of a study that was done uh, at the lab of Professor David Anderson here at Caltech mm -hmm. in 2016 with mice. The specific brain function that he was interested in was aggression. So they looked at this area of the mouse brain called the hypothalamus that people know control aggression. In a very coarse manner, if your hypothalamus is more active, chances are that you're engaging in some pattern of aggression. But not just that, it could be something completely different as they shown. So let's assume I put one mouse into another mouse's home cage, okay? Mm -hmm. The mouse's home cage is equipped with all of these light probes, basically, that enable the home mouse to be controlled with optogenetics. When the invader comes in, when the new mouse comes in as an intruder, these two mice can sometimes engage in behavior like aggression. Or sometimes, if they're uh, of opposite sexes, they could engage in mounting. So sometimes this happens. And now, it turns out that if, for some reason, these two mice engage in fighting and you inhibit activity in the hypothalamus in the meantime, what will happen is that aggression will stop. You, it's as if you immediately could cancel uh, this pattern of aggression within a few seconds. Hmm. Now, if you in turn increase activity in the hypothalamus, you're able to then create a patterns of aggression out of nowhere. Okay. I have a question about the technique in, in general. Um, so in 
say in genetics, often when people manipulate genes in, say, a small bacterium or something, they often have to worry about something known as an off-target effect. How do you, which is effectively that you think you're manipulating this one thing, but it turns out there's cascading effects yes. throughout the cell. How do you sort of, with optogenetics, you're, you know, you're stimulating what you think is this one region, but how do you know it's not actually because it's, it's maybe stimulating this, but the response is elsewhere? Right. That is a very good question, and that is a very important problem in optogenetics. There are many techniques to ensure specificity uh, of the area you're targeting, including just simply imaging uh, slices of brain okay. uh, and staining to make sure that you were targeting where you thought you were really okay. targeting. But an additional way to ensure specificity to the level of synapsis okay. is actually uh, to use a virus, a rabies virus, okay. to ensure that if you implant the optogenetic device, so to speak, mm -hmm. into a certain cell, with the use of rabies virus, you could ensure that the only cells that you're targeting are the ones that are, for example, one synapse away from the area okay. that you started with. Okay. Mm -hmm. And can you remind our listeners what a synapse is? Yes, of course. Yeah. So synapses are what neurons use to communicate with each other. Most of our cells in the brain are neurons. There's a lot of um, other things going on there, but the, the main cells that uh, convey information in the brain are neurons, and they use a combination of electric activity with chemical messaging in order to transmit information. The way it works is electric information gets transported from one tip of the neuron to the other, and that gets transformed into chemical messaging Right. that then in turn gets transported from one neuron to another. This space where the chemical messaging happens is called a synapse. So optogenetics can happen at that at the resolution of a of a synapse. You could theoretically okay. target a group of neurons okay. by using these rabies viruses only affect neurons that are, for example, one synapse down from oh, the initial cool. group of okay. neurons. Yeah. So that's possible to do. Okay. Now, I told you what happens if if we stimulate mm -hmm. the hypothalamus, it generates aggression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that happens if you stimulate optogenetically with a certain intensity. It has to be uh, a quite a sizable intensity. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you think would happen if we stimulated the hypothalamus just a little bit? Just a little bit of light, you mean? Yes. Mm. Uh, decreased aggression? I don't. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very counterintuitive. They get scared? Do, do they mount? They do. <laughs> <laughs> and this is something that caused a lot of um, questions. Mm -hmm. What really is going on here? I believe not all of it is answered yet. The hypothalamus seems to be involved in many aspects of social cognition. And at the same time, it's not only looking into anger or aggression. That same brain structure that affect the same neurons, depending on the level of uh, activation, mm -hmm. could be inducing completely opposite patterns of behavior. Mm. So in that case, they did find that by shining just a little bit of light, you could confidently and reliably generate mounting <laughs> onto the invading mouse, even if it was uh, another male. Wow. Now, just to wrap this uh, topic up, they even found 
that you could induce aggression and mounting within the same encounter. Hmm. You could stimulate those cells and then stimulate just a little bit and the mouse would transition over from being very aggressive to mounting. Mm -hmm. So this is just to demonstrate the effectiveness of these stimulation techniques that you can get such divergent behavioral responses from, from just shining a little light in, different, in the right area. And it's more than just that, it's demonstrating the full range of functions that could come, that could happen sure. uh, as a direct result of the activity of the hypothalamus. Mm -hmm. There's, there are actually cases of humans that uh, were born without this brain region called the amygdala. And then what happens is scientists try to figure out what the amygdala does by looking at those people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a patient who was studied, uh, among others, by uh, Antonio Damasio at USC and Rolf Adolfs, who is here at Caltech, who had a rare genetic condition called the urbach vita disease, hmm. which is uh, basically, it amounts to a mutation that changes how a certain protein is produced in development, and that through some unknown cascade of events that is not clear yet, uh, generates a brain that has everything but the amygdala, hmm. specifically, in either side of the brain. Hmm. A person that has no amygdala might not experience fear, but is that necessarily the case? Maybe those functions that uh, were done by the amygdala in a normal brain would be uh, performed just as well by other parts of the brain yeah. that during development just get wired up differently. Mm -hmm. So you have to test that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what they, what they did with this patient was actually a series of experiments that involve, okay, let's see if this person has fear. Mm -hmm. So first, anecdotally, they brought patient HM to a number of experiences that would be normally scary for people. Mm -hmm. For example, they brought her to a horror movie. They brought her to a pet shop where she could pet snakes and spiders. Oh, that's a no. <laughs> <laughs> snakes are fine, but no, 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 I want to pet spiders. Continue. <laughs> they even brought her to a haunted house with real actors. Oh. <laughs> the purpose of scaring her, and apparently that was all to no avail, of course. Huh? <laughs> Scientifically speaking, this is just anecdotal, right? right? Yes. But it is actually irritating to think of scientists bringing a <laughs> you know, subject to a horror house. person had to take her to a horror movie yes. and like, sit yeah. there like their hands over their eyes the whole time? Yes. Oh, God. Um, and yes, apparently it was to no avail. She reported not being startled by any of those things. Mm -hmm. And this seems to be corroborated, corroborated by certain tests that they do in the lab. For example... They engaged this patient in what we call Pavlovian fear conditioning, which consists of the following. You show a certain cue to the patient or to the subject that could be a, an image or a tone or something that has no innate value. And then every time after you show this cue, you present something that's scary, for example, shock. So if you do that enough times, as it turns out, 
your amygdala learns to anticipate that a shock is coming just by looking at the cue or by hearing the cue. Mm -hmm. However, this person does not have an amygdala. So what happens then if you show, for example, a tone and shock this person several times? So they did that, and the variable that they measured was something called skin conductance, which consists of the following. You can put, for example, an electrode on somebody's hand and measure the conductance of their skin, basically how much current is going through the electrode. They measured how sweaty her palms got, exactly. basically? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> exactly. So you measure, as you become more scared with something, you're, there are there is a very min small amount of sweat that gets produced that is not perceptible, but it's, it gets picked up on conductance. Hmm. So they did that with her and measured skin conductance given a scary cue that would definitely shock her. And yet, nothing. This might not be great for the person, right? Because you might get engaged in some reckless behaviors. Uh, there isn't a whole lot that um, can be said about this person's bio uh, biography because uh, their identity is kept secret mm -hmm. for obvious reasons of privacy. Mm -hmm. but. You can also imagine how this would be bad for someone who is around that person. Because as it turns out, not only patient SM was not able to apparently feel fear, but also she was not able to detect fear in faces that she saw. Mm -hmm. If you show a picture of somebody who's really scared to this patient and you asked her what emotion is being expressed here, she would not be able to tell you. And this leads to another uh, hypothesis that is the amygdala isn't just looking at fearful things it's also encoding fear and emotions at a social level your sure. uh, your ability to perceive these things yeah. in other people is also affected okay here's one last catch they theorized that her inability to detect fear in other people was due to an impaired perception of the emotional content of people's eyes, hmm. which carry a lot of information about emotion. Hmm. So if researchers asked her explicitly to look at somebody's eyes while she made the judgment of emotion, she would instantly improve. So as it seems, the amygdala seems to be regulating something that has something to do with how we look into somebody's eyes. Mm -hmm. But and other portions of the brain can and extract can compensate for it when yes. you tell the patient to focus? Yes. Okay. That's interesting. Yes. Why the eyes? What, like what? They're is the there windows to the soul. <laughs> that is yeah. actually yeah, yeah. true. It's <laughs> completely true. I've heard true. this about dogs. Like apparently dogs have evolved to like give an expression that makes humans more fond yeah. of them or something like that. It's like related is to that what real babies look or like that... or something. I forget. That is true. Yeah. Is that real? Okay. We, uh, <laughs> Humans and dogs co-evolved. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of it for dogs has been simply looking more appealing to humans mm. and engaging in emotional connections with humans a lot more than wolves would do. Mm. Yeah. I'm yeah. Going back to this, this lack of being able to socially understand fear, do we know why she wasn't able to? Is it that 
when you see a face that's expressing fear, you yourself feel fear and hence can understand the emotion? Hmm. Or what is the connection between not being able to feel the fear and not being able to identify it? Right. That is a very good question. One of the theories, and, 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 and I think this is all in the realm of theory at this point, but one of the theories is exactly what you said, that you would be able to project mm-hmm. whatever the other person is feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are theories that say that with regards to other people that you're actually simulating mm-hmm. the other person's mind to make a judgment then of what you would think you would feel okay. if you were in their position. Mm-hmm. So, but then there's people that might say that no, well, uh, you're not simulating anything. You're just able to perform a basic classification. I look at this face and I can very easily tell what emotion it is with no regards as to what I feel mm-hmm. uh, about that. This might be totally tangential and I don't know if you know about this or, or um, know details about um, these, but I think anthropologists have looked at emotions in different cultures and uh, some groups of people have emotion, particular emotions that others don't have at all. Um, how does, how does, does that play into this at all, where you have to kind of see the behavior modeled socially, or sorry, see the emotion modeled socially before you can understand it and associate with the emotion? Yeah, this is very tricky, right? Because uh, once you start to get into the realm of conscious perception, which that's what it boils down to, or conscious experiences, uh, it's very hard for anyone to fully grasp what somebody else's conscious experience is, right? So for example, is what I call fear the same thing you call fear, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, There's this cluster of things that happen in our brain that might be slightly different for each one of us, that we tend to cluster as fear in the English language but each one of us might experience it slightly differently mm-hmm. because of our upbringing or because of cultural environments and so forth. Uh, and I think in the study that you mentioned, uh, in the anthropology study that you mentioned, it would be maybe the extreme case of that, right? Uh, you have different brain states. It boils down to different brain states being generated collectively mm-hmm. uh, that we just don't grasp Mm -hmm. right Uh, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't be able to engage in those mental states it just means that we um, might not have had that upbringing so on that note the way scientists try to define emotion as a as an object to study and this is very hard to do right yeah but the way they attempt to do that is by saying okay emotions are first of all internal brain states we're going to assume they occur in the brain but they are internal brain states that can impact behavior the state of the body and mental states themselves whatever fits into these characteristics uh, then is defined as an emotion to uh, as an object of study and it's very interesting because emotions could have absolutely no effect over your overt behavior. But 
just by uh, virtue of affecting your mental states, right. they themselves could be classified as an emotion and an object of study. Hmm. But this is very difficult because obviously people experience them differently. How do you think, where do you think fear has played a role in yes. like, the graduate student experience, like, right. for you? Yeah. yeah, at least for me, as time goes by, there's this pattern of uh, a little bit of disruption in the sense that you start to focus a lot more on your work, yeah, and everything else starts to kind of fade away a little bit. At least that was my experience. I don't want to generalize, but mm -hmm. everything else starts to kind of get in the background and the work becomes the centerpiece of what you do. And I think a lot of it is because of fear. Fear that you might not be done in time or fear that your paper might be rejected or fear that your advisor might have some questions for you. <laughs> uh, I mean, my advisor is great, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's true. <laughs> I'm saying this out of my own volition, <laughs> not fear. <laughs> Uh, but if you will, it may call it an anxiety or, or fear, but as you approach your conclusion date, you get to a point where you start to think, well, I really got to start getting things done. Mm -hmm. And then, sure. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear that because I feel like, like you were describing, there, there comes a point, a transition period where the other stuff starts to fall away and you focus near exclusively on, on your, your thesis. Um, and you're starting your fifth year. The rest of us are just starting our third year now in grad school. Uh, and I'm starting to feel that a little bit um, because I knew I know when I came here, I started getting involved in a bunch of different things, you know, spread the net wide, um, make connections here and there. And now that we've, we're at the point where at the end of our second year, we've finished required classes and the only real like substantive requirement left for our graduation is to discover something and, and <laughs> publish a thesis uh, that really does take center stage and it is a weird it is a weird feeling that transition um, and I agree with you I think a lot of it is fear um, part of it's part of it's uh, not only fear of you know those things that you listed like getting your paper published and all the other stuff but underlying that is this fear of you know Will I be good enough for this for this career path? Um, especially when you look to the people that are supporting you, like your advisors, who are so accomplished and knowledgeable and like comfortable with talking so fluidly about their their research, um, their research, it it can be intimidating sometimes. And I think that must be especially intimidating for people who come from families where they're the first to go to grad school or the first to, or they come from a community that's typically underrepresented in academia in some way, to come in, you've got the fear of being like, will I be smart enough, will I know enough? And you also have the fear of saying, of saying, well, I'm the first representative of my family, of my, you know, one of the few representatives in my community. And that's added pressure, I think, mm -hmm. um, for a lot of people in grad school. And I don't really have a point to make, I just wanted to acknowledge that. I'm a little surprised you rated fear a four yeah. <laughs> so is this a positive experience? Or? <laughs> it's a it's a necessary experience. I, I at least for me, a lot of times uh, I'm more productive under certain constraints, right? Or I'm more productive when there's a deadline coming mm -hmm. up. 
Uh, and I think fear plays a big role in that. <laughs> it's tricky, right? Because a lot of times it, it can paralyze you. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot that we have to do is learn how that we process that ourselves and how to somehow make that not happen, how to not mm-hmm. become paralyzed. But that's a very personal experience for each one of us, and it's very difficult to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think in the context of grad, of grad school, one of the best ways to unparalyze yourself is to go talk to someone about it. And it doesn't mean you have to go to someone and say, I'm feeling so nervous right now, although you should if that's something you think you need. But if you're feeling, if you think you're feeling paralyzed because you have no idea what to do, like go ask someone more experienced and say, I don't understand enough about this topic or about what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Can you point me in the right direction or point me towards papers that I can read or something like that? It's a good way to unparalyze yourself. Just as a reminder, at the end of every episode, we like to challenge ourselves by making a fun summary in 10 minutes. It can be either a poem or an upgoer five. Upgoer fives are blurbs that use only the 1,000 most common words in the English language, which can be challenging. You can find out more about upgoer fives in the show notes. All right. Who's going first? I could go first. Let's hear it. So I wrote a very simple haiku. <laughs> Let's go. A life with no fear. <laughs> Maybe no amygdala. Maybe too much beer. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. All right. I did an upgore five. Uh, fear drives a lot of what humans do. And it might all start in the middle of our brains. But it's not all simple. Sometimes, the same place that drives fear in mice also drives those mice to make sweet love. (laughs) And it turns out that in humans, too, when the middle of our brain is missing, it seems to take away our fear with it, and even our way of seeing fear in other people. It's both amazing and scary, I think, that a few cells can cause so many of our thoughts. Nice. That's beautiful. Deep. And then there's me. Got two limericks this time. Ooh. First one goes A shout or a yell you might hear, or freeze in headlights like a deer. Whether fight or flight, we see a new we see in a new light with Tomas's discussion of fear. <laughs> first one. Second one. Oh, wow. nice. Second one goes Arachnids inspire a scream when they're here. I'm not living the dream, but at least they can't fly because I might really cry if one landed in my ice cream. <laughs> and let's hear what Julian has. Okay. okay. Yeah. Again, I really okay. Rippled muscles land blows, tearing, pounding, gnashing teeth. Ruin mounts with marked depth. Pillars give way as the mad Hercules inflicts his horrid crime. His family falls beneath wretched fists. Meanwhile, Hera reaches with jealous fingers, inflicting punishment for Zeus's indiscretion, pinching, clawing, squeezing. First she affects this hypothalamic tissue, then another connected part, and Hercules continues unending rage. Oh. <laughs> wow. we need to Never disappoint. Yeah, this is a whole narrative. Yeah. Yeah. We need to collect all like, the I hope you're typing these up like somewhere. This. Like with the, all these classical uh, 
allusions to classical things. Like, we need to collect them all yeah. and, like, put it into a published <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> and now, Lev has been lurking in the background this whole time and is popping in to give us a poem. <laughs> Let's yes, hear it, Lev. I, uh, I think being a producer and stuck in a corner this time has really changed my perspective on things. <laughs> uh, so the, this poem is kind of weirdly dissociative. Um, ah, so this is science, my brain proclaims. I am in reliance on this strange appliance that contains my very self to study what made my mind ruddy. Laying in a tube, a spider by my shoe, I contemplate work and my various dues. Yeah, nice. Incredible. Yeah, good job. Yeah, good job, everyone. Well everywhere. done all yes. around. Yeah, that was great. All right, yeah, Tomas, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, we hope to have you on again in the future, but in the meantime, you know, best of luck with all of your research, and thanks for sharing all this cool neuroscience with us. Yeah, it's thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming. Okay, and that concludes uh, another episode of Biosphere. This has been John. Aditi. Julian. Tomas. <laughs> and Lev's lurking. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you to Caltech Letters for hosting us. You can find more great science at caltechletters.org. Please subscribe wherever you like to purchase your podcasts. And if you're out in the woods and you see something of the biological nature that you can't understand, or you have other comments or questions for us, shoot us an email at biospherepodcasts at gmail.com or tweet at Lev at the handle at LMT underscore spoon. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week.